0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today I'm going to be talking to Sophie McIntosh, whose first novel, The Water Cure, was long listed for the Booker Prize in 2018. Sophie's latest novel, Cursed Bread, is a mesmerising and chilling story inspired by the true event of an unsolved mass poisoning. It's been described as a shimmering fever dream and remarkable, sensuous and thrillingly written. Sophie, it's great to talk to you today. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast or Croeso e Bodlediad Penguin. (laughs) So you are bilingual um, and I'll come on to that later.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, it's really exciting to be here.
1: (laughs) So the story of Cursed Bread, which I really loved. um, So it's written through the eyes of Elodie, who's a baker's wife in a small town and she's married to a husband who doesn't desire her and I found him a really mysterious character he's perfecting um, his baking and wants to make the perfect loaf of bread and is um, I I found him really really interesting character actually and I I don't think he's he doesn't Appear as much in it as, as the main other three characters, but his presence was felt everywhere for me. Elodie becomes obsessed with two new arrivals to the community. Um, a woman called Violet and her husband, who's an American ambassador, and they're quite mysterious and alluring. And this account of desire is set against the post World War II backdrop of a true story of a town in France, Pointe Saint Esprit, where the residents succumbed to a mass poisoning in 1951, which has never been solved. When did you first encounter the story of the poisoning?
0: It was a few years ago and it was one of those things where, you know, you're kind of scrolling on Twitter and you're kind of procrastinating and I just came across this story. It was like, oh, Stranger Than Fiction, the French town that went mad. And I'm always really interested in like mass poisoning events, kind of mass hysteria events. I just find something about them so compelling. So I read about the story and I was like, oh, that's, that's really, really interesting i was just sort of stuck in my head and I I kind of write, well, until then I'd sort of written mostly sort of more speculative fiction. I hadn't really worked from true events. So I kind of, I had the story in my head and I kept thinking about it and returning to it and wondering, you know, if there was sort of something there that I could use for like a story or a novel. And then I kind of, it sort of took on a life of its own, really. <laughs> when you've got
1: that spark of an idea, do you find it's best to kind of let it ferment for a bit, so not necessarily write anything down formally, but just keep your subconscious mulling it over until something comes to the surface.
0: Definitely. Um, There's something about giving it time and seeing where it could go, because I think... Especially with something like this, like the first instinct would be, oh, I could just, you know, retell what actually happened. And actually, the more I kind of let it percolate, because I was working on other books, you know, if you kind of let it percolate and you keep coming back to it, then it shows that there is definitely something there. And you can also think about the best way to tell the story or what it might turn into is actually rather than just do a retelling, to me it felt more interesting to use it as a springboard to tell like a very different story. And that was kind of naturally where my thoughts went as I returned to it again and again.
1: It feels like the true event gives energy to this story of obsession, which actually I suppose could happen in the modern day and could happen in another country in different circumstances. It's a story about erotic obsession. But I feel like the fact that you've got this poisoning simmering underneath and the post-war element, because she talks about, you know, hoping that they'll never feel hungry again and the rationing having gone away. I feel like it really provides this kind of nest for the story of obsession to flourish.
0: Yes, when I first encountered the story, I didn't even really think about the Second World War and then when I was actually writing it, I was like, oh, they've had this massive traumatic event and then this other really, like, massive traumatic event but more locally focused that was something I kind of returned to you and something that definitely became really important in the writing of it that thinking of how such a big historical event could inform the reaction to a smaller one yeah using like the seed of a true story that I think the funny thing is that you kind of get so not far away from it because it's definitely like still there and the idea too of like You know, desire can be a kind of poisoning. You know, there's so many kind of different kind of poisonings in the novel. There's like the obsession, um, things kind of percolating slowly between the characters, these relationships kind of developing. Yeah, because it becomes like less about um, the poisoning itself. And uh, it's funny because people kind of might pick up the book expecting it to be a retelling. And then they're like, hey, it's like a horny little book about this woman who's obsessed with a couple. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I never, I felt the presence of,
1: poisoning pulling them all towards this destiny it was like an undercurrent so I think it was really really effective and I think it would have been a really really different book if the poisoning hadn't as you say there's a poisoning within the obsession that she has for the couple especially for Violet I think and you've got the fact of the poisoning that Perhaps you know is coming, but perhaps you don't. I think it's interesting. If I hadn't known that it was kind of inspired by... Because I would say it's inspired by the story of the poisoning rather than a retelling of, or even based on. um, It's like you've used the spark of the poisoning to create something else. If I'd picked it up and not known the story of the poisoning, I still would have felt this momentum, like it's building towards something really violent and unpleasant. So... You've used it in a really effective way. And for me, it's, I think, far more interesting to read a story like this rather than a direct retelling. Did you ever think, actually, I should do that? Or were you always thinking, I think I'll just use it as a springboard?
0: I think when I read about the story first, I actually felt a little bit kind of like smug. So I was like, great, actually, like the story basically written. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then it like never kind of works out like that. There was a whole thing actually during kind of the editing process where me and my editor were like, should we put an author's note at the beginning or at the end? And I was like really pushing for the end because I kind of loved the idea that you could get through the book and be like, what is going on? And then at the end, you're like, oh, that was kind of. A bit real, but at the same time, um, like the town isn't mentioned by name or the other characters. I mean, it's obviously like hints it's set in France because everyone's kind of referred to as like madame or mademoiselle, but it's not really like named. Um, It's not, and the ambassador's never named, mm, is he? Yeah, yeah. It's all kind of quite, um, not like vague. Vague isn't what I was trying to do, but that sense of, it sort of could be lots of places. It's more like an idea of a French town than the actual town, which seems silly because it is based on a real place, but... Yeah, that kind of wouldn't be possible if I just told it as a retelling. So, yeah, I, I'm glad I went for the the spark. I think that's kind of how I write generally anyway. Like an idea will happen and I sort of have to go along for the ride essentially and, yeah, see where it will take me. With the conversation about the author's note coming at the beginning or the end,
1: do you find that the relationship with the editor is really important? Because you, those conversations can be slightly sort of want to go, it's my book, let's just put it at the end. Um do you feel like the relationship with the editor kind of gets tested in a way at points?
0: I don't... Maybe I think I have a I have a really good relationship with my editor. So I think I've been super lucky and she edits with so much care and thoroughness and she's worked on all my books. So, like, we've been together since the start. It makes it sound like a long marriage. <laughs> it kind of feels like a professional marriage. She is so great because she's very much like, OK, well, it is your book. I'm going to obviously, like here are my suggestions but if you really feel strongly about something as long as you can like fight for it it's just kind of making your case and so in this case it was one of those times where I was like look I really want the author's note at the end because I just feel like the experience for the reader will be different this is what I'm trying to do and it's sort of like yeah fair enough as long as you yourself know why you're making that decision, which is actually like quite a good habit to get into anyway, instead of being like, I just want I want I just want it. Yeah, I think that's true. Like
1: sometimes you surprise yourself when you have to give a reason and it can actually teach you something about the work itself. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's good that you know each other so well as well. She must know you inside out and your work inside out and there's such a value to having that relationship that
0: trust between each other three books in as well you just really get the sense that you know someone really knows your voice and kind of knows what you're trying to do and I think that's really you know really exciting and really really lucky to have
1: as well So I mentioned that you are bilingual and I'm really interested in, so you did your schooling in Welsh. I know you've said that um, your parents aren't Welsh speakers, um, but you grew up in an area of Pembrokeshire that had a Welsh school. You you did your schooling in Welsh. Um, I know you've said that you perhaps are slightly more rusty these days, but I'm sure it's still all there within you. Do you think it's an advantage to have had that bilingualism from such an early age, especially with a language like Welsh that is so lyrical and, has so much literature written in it?
0: Completely. I think it just kind of really feeds into the way you think about musicality and my school was very into like I said and you know, that big festival we kind of do a lot of music a lot of um reciting and writing like, we'd have the writing competition each year as part of it where in like Wales you have this sort of big poetry competition and you get to be like crowned and you get to sit in the chair and we, so we would do like a small version of that it's um, taken really seriously
1: in Wales mm-hmm. isn't it the dad the I'm yeah. going to my first one this year and it's um I'm really excited because we don't have anything like that in England I oh, was excited you're going to see Mr Erd oh, Yeah. <laughs> mascot
0: yeah um, no no it was, really, it was a really big thing in my school and I really used to look forward to the you know the writing portion it was kind of you know you just you kind of have a day where you get to go off and if you want to compete you can like just write poems it was it was brilliant <laughs> my favourite day of the year at school that kind of thing I think was really important and doing Welsh like literature GCSE and stuff having to at the time it was really annoying having to memorise about like 10 Welsh poems but they're so specific in terms of like metre and rhythm and sound and like really beautiful to read and I definitely think that kind of um, you know it has an influence on my writing whether subconsciously or consciously just that sense of you know, loving how things sound. And I always read my work aloud when I'm writing it, which is probably like so annoying. (laughs) Um, But I think it's quite a good exercise just in terms of thinking about how it's fitting together, not just on the page, but like as a kind of, as a rhythmic whole, I guess. So we always ask our writers to bring on a few things to talk about.
1: So the first object that you've brought, and I presume you haven't actually physically brought this with you, um, is something that reminds you of home.
0: I brought um, the sea, the sea is a, like a massive thing in my work. Um, You know, my first book, The Water Cure, was set in a hotel by the sea. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Pembrokeshire in Wales. It's kind of always been something which is, like, really important to me and sort of crops up again and again. When I was sort of thinking about these sort of objects and I I was thinking about how, you know, long, especially the time of year it is, I was thinking about, like, long summers in Pembrokeshire and how formative that time was in terms of, that sense of really connecting with the landscape and these sort of endless days, having so much time to like think and swim around and I keep saying connection to the landscape, which is like so cheesy, but that feeling of like really belonging somewhere and just like, yeah, swimming around and these like long, endless summer days. Whenever I kind of think about Um, Growing up in Pembrokeshire and kind of growing up in Wales, I do remember the strangeness of it as well, and how, you know, how spooky it can be, especially growing up kind of before the internet and just being like a, you know, a child sort of in the middle of nowhere, basically just like reading and swimming all day long. (laughs) Did you spend a lot of time alone? Yeah, for sure. I was quite um, well. We lived in the middle of nowhere, and I was quite like a, quite like a loner child, just kind of used to like getting a piles of books and just yeah inventing kind of harebrained schemes sometimes with my sister and, like sometimes alone <laughs> and we lived on um we lived on a farm for a bit when I was about seven or eight and you know there was kind of always always sort of like minor disasters happening like I remember we like we adopted like a stray cat and she had kittens things that like, kind of are sweet and nice and kind of rural and then they kind of go go bad <laughs> like being chased by bulls and stuff yeah I thought about that actually when I was reading the book
1: because there's like the horror, I suppose, of life or the violence, the darkness, just there. Um, And sometimes in the book, it felt like the two worlds, it was really like a Venn diagram revealing itself to me, where you had the world of the town and the community and I suppose the monotony perhaps of their work, washing the clothes and the routine, knocking up against this chaotic underbelly of what was happening so her obsession with violet and the ambassador the i suppose the erotic nature of her fantasies about the both of them her feelings towards her husband which i think had jagged edges um, and also i suppose the fact of the poisoning i found it really affected that these two worlds kind of were almost squashed together at times jostling Mm -hmm for space, is that something you look for in the art that you like? Do you like reading books where that darkness is evident or looking
0: at pictures where it has that kind of bite to it? I I love that, the jagged edges, yeah. Um, And, yeah, so much I kind of... I've always been drawn to things that are quite morbid, I guess. I don't know. Um, I don't think it is morbid, though. I feel like it...
1: Like, I know what you mean, because I think some people would go... But to me, it isn't. It gives almost makes me more excited to be alive because it's like that stuff's there. So live.
0: Yeah. Anything that kind of has a darkness to it, I think, especially when, yeah, when the darkness kind of rubs up against something else, which is like lighter. It's so, it's so intriguing. Like her it has like these kind of dark, like nature elements and yeah, that kind of that rubbing up of these different elements. But I just remembered there's like actually not seeing sea in it, but it's the only book where there's not really a sea. <laughs> but there's definitely like there's water as well. There's lots of mention of water, yeah. actually. There's lots of mention of light
1: and water. So there's often orange light and there are pools of light mm. and there are slices of light. I loved the pacing of it and I loved the way that you described the rain and the light because it gave real context to what was going on and nothing was rushed. It was just... When I was reading it, it was like veils of desire and veils of thought. It reminded me of the sea, the way it was almost like waves of of thoughts. So I think that the sea is there, actually, even if it's not literally described. And I know what you mean, I think. I got the sense that it was a European town. Um, I didn't want to know about the poisoning beforehand. I sort of vaguely knew it was based on this true event, but I think it was great that the author's note came at the end. Um, I felt like it was in Europe and I didn't need to know any more than that. But there's something about the waves, the inevitability of what's going to happen. I think that that's present in the sea. Sea will always keep going. <laughs> that's just about the only thing that we can be sure of. Yeah, um, I
0: think as well. Like water is that element that does have that specific kind of, you know, that kind of beauty and darkness. This is actually like a very powerful element. Like nature is kind of terrifying and can harm you. And, like nature doesn't care about you. But when you look at the
1: sea on a a warm day as opposed to a rainy day or a snowy day, it completely
0: changes, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, completely. It's just like it becomes, you know, like benevolent and, and sweet and like lovely and <laughs> it just seems like nothing could ever ever go wrong. Even the tide coming in changes everything. So I guess you think, you know, oh, I'll go and swim in there. And it's like, well you can but there's always a condition almost mm. i was always really fascinated by this welsh like folk tale about country Gwaelod, about like a town which is like flooded and then becomes sort of a Atlantis and I don't think it's actually I don't think it's actually true I don't think it's actually like a flooded town but the idea that you can like still hear the bells ringing and there's a whole kind of secret kind of world underneath the water and yeah I, I, I mean I grew up with Welsh mythology so it's kind of it's always been like really fascinating to me I remember my parents had this book called the Welsh fairy book and I still kind of leaf through it when I go home there's something about the underground the bell tower and the houses it's
1: like Nature fighting against man in a way. It's like the bells want to carry on ringing despite the sea. Mm. There's a kind of two forces there again i'm not surprised you're fascinated by that was it always conceived as a first person novel because i think there's something where it's told by elodie in the first person then the chapters are interspersed with letters from elodie to violet from i suppose the future or where well it's not the future actually it's where elodie is now looking back on what's happened so you get the story told kind of as a story where you're you're in it then you get these letters from years later which kind of cast a new light on everything was that always the, the form it was going to
0: take yeah I think it kind of always definitely felt like a first person um, book to me but actually no that's not even quite true because I had a lot of trouble with this book figuring out what voice to do it in so I actually originally did it in violet first person and I wrote like half a whole book and then I got to the halfway point and I was like it was just kind of wasn't it wasn't really working like I just didn't it was always like a sticky middle, but it was fully just... I think if, if, I was like absolutely dreading kind of going on and I couldn't see a way forward. And I was like, well, that's kind of a sign to rethink it. And it wasn't the story. It was just like the way it was being told. So I kind of thought about how better to tell it. And then, yeah, I had a sort of experiment with... Um, I went for like a chorus of ghosts. I don't really know where that one came from. <laughs> that was kind of like first person, but like a few different ones and more observational. And I was like, oh, actually, there's something in like the observation, and there's something in the first person, and it's not a ghost, but, like, maybe someone in the village. And then I was like, oh, Elodie, like, she's so important to the story. The relationship is told from her point of view as opposed from being told from Violet's point of view. is actually so much more interesting, and it was just... It seems kind of obvious in retrospect, but it was just that little light bulb moment. And then when I had a sort of hit on her voice, like it just really, it flowed really easily. Was like kind of nailing the voice is really difficult for me, but when it happens, it's like the most important thing.
1: <laughs> and Elodie is like a ghost in a sense. She feels invisible to her husband. She tries to initiate sex with him multiple times. He turns away. She's hungry for something. And I can see why it's effective to tell it from her point of view as opposed to Violet's because although you'd think it would work with Violet's because she's an outsider coming in and she's got this air of mystery about her. It's quite delicious not really knowing that much about her, and you almost feel excited with Elodie to observe Violet, and they've got a lot of wealth. And I always find that really fascinating when people are kind of haven't really got anything to do because they've got a lot of money and she kind of creates these games for herself and she likes drawing. I just found that watching Violet with Elodie. I found that it very seductive to imagine Violet in these different settings. And I can totally see how it's better for the reader to be with Elegy and to feel her frustration, mm-hmm. to almost feel her wanting to break out of her life.
0: Yeah, it's with Violet, there's almost a kind of emptiness, not in a sense of like her being vacuous thing, but there's just something. Yeah, there is just a sort of a space, which I guess a space that like Elodie can project so much onto I could have you know maybe gone deeper into Violet and kind of explored that emptiness and you know done something with that but instead it was more interesting to me to go for Elodie who's like completely not empty she's just like you know wildly full of so many passions and like no one ever listens to her like there's a point in the book where she's just like talking to her husband and just like he's not registering at all she's like I'll throw myself off a bridge I'll like bake myself into a pie and he's just like Okay, darling, fine. <laughs> and it's just like no one's listening to her. So to have her like be able to tell the whole book and to tell it in like this lurid detail and to, you know, say what she wants for the first time to have people kind of listening to her story instead of taking in other stories that felt like an important kind of distinction as well, like not something that Violet would have had to sort of deal with.
1: Also, there's bits where Violet gives her tidbits about her past, like the time that she's spent time in a mental institution. and um, She talks about feeling like her, her head had been cut off and she's carrying it around under her arm, which is such an amazing image. And the fact that she doesn't give Elodie that many facts about her life, you feel this complete infatuation that I suppose most people have felt this I certainly have where you're completely infatuated by someone and any tidbits that they give you you kind of feast on because it's like they've chosen me to tell this to
0: mm, yeah it's such a toxic dynamic that sense of like begging for crumbs almost but and like kind of hating yourself for it but also you know being so grateful and and you know for her I think it's the first time she's had a kind of passion like that that's actually not totally reciprocated but She's been inducted into this life. She's been, you know, loved in a sort of way. Any kind of attention to be sort of given it after craving it is so um, seductive to her. And
1: also, it feels at times that Violet needs her, and then at other times that she's
0: dismissive. And
1: that is the way humans are. Mm. Um, well, let's move on to your next
0: object. This is something to watch, *More Than Color*. Um, yeah, so this is my favorite film, and. I always think of it when I'm writing books because it's got a very singular heroine at its heart who I guess also ca- has that kind of a sort of quality of emptiness that I think Violet has quite an enigma. And we don't really know what she's thinking. And she's kind of, I don't know how much to say because I'm like, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who yeah, doesn't know. Sure. But you know, like, it's, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, it's kind of like she's sort of in the sort of moral. Conundrum and like reacting and not the way we would expect. Yeah. But also like using it as a catalyst to have a sort of personal journey. I just found it so fascinating. I mean, I love the book as well. I think the film adaptation was. It was always scary watching a film adaptation of a book you love, but when you see the film, you're like, it is literally just like reading the book. It's kind of not quite the same, but it's so like what I imagined and so faithful to it and so beautiful in its own right as an object and. I always think of it aesthetically when I'm writing because I think that sense of attention to detail and just sort of you know the, the way the scenes are shot and the, the stillness and the and the color like when I'm writing a book it's not just words on a page like I can see it and kind of feel it and having a kind of I guess a filmic benchmark is really useful maybe it sounds kind of silly <laughs> I don't think it does at all because your the reader will imagine it
1: when they're reading it so I think it's right to to have that attention to detail um, and they'll probably imagine it in a completely different way that that's
0: one one of the beauties of it isn't it mm. it's, it's so much of it is like her inner life and her feelings and her sort of mental state and the fact that a film can evoke that with you know often without much dialogue with just like these beautiful shots and stuff but just, I just always find it so so incredible
1: without uh, any spoilers a big event has occurred that no one was expecting and as you say, her reactions. At odds to what you would expect. And you do it's intense as well as you kind of really feel that you're with the protagonist um from the beginning. And when you're writing, do you find that your viewing and reading habits change depending on what you're working on?
0: Yeah, it depends kind of what stage I'm at. I think if I'm like in a very feverish first draft I'm trying not to like read too much around it because I don't want to be influenced and also I kind of don't want to distract myself. I kind of just want to be in the world of one book and that's like my book. But I write first drafts really quickly and they're, they're like super messy. But I think in the larger process of writing a book, because I'm always kind of writing a book at some stage and I have to also, like, read. <laughs> and I want to read, like, there's so many books that I I wish I could read at, like, 500 times the speed with a slightly different brain. <laughs> or have, like, two brains I could like switch them out. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it kind of really depends. If I'm editing, I... If I'm kind of in an obsessive phase, I might gravitate more to like nonfiction and stuff. And um, but if I'm kind of in a phase where I'm still thinking a lot around the idea, and and maybe in a less intensive bit of writing, which is kind of the point I'm at at the moment with the book I'm currently working on, I feel really drawn to like books kind of not just around the similar subject, but anything that kind of feels exciting to me anything that feels exciting like formally it almost like it makes me hungry to read because I want to just like sort of fill myself up not to kind of put in the book but I'm feeling like excited about sort of everything <laughs> sounds so earnest, but yeah
1: yeah no I think that it, it waxes and wanes does you gotta have to roll with it sometimes you do just feel like I want to gobble like everything up and go with your instincts and then mm. at other times I think it's like more the winter of um I don't know you kind of what you're bedding in doing you're in a slightly different mode um the the book's so humorous at times so that there's this group of women who Elodie sees an awful lot they come into the bakery for their bread and she um, goes to the lavoir and washes the clothes um, with them this group of women are quite key players for me in terms of especially setting the environment that Elodie lives in, and you get the sense that she's known these women all her life and they're kind of part of the fabric of her life, really. There's a brilliant moment where Madame G comes into the bakery and she's saying that she's tired, that there's just this real familiarity. I found her a really funny character. And she was like, say, I'm going to die soon, give me some bread. Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course. (laughs) But that kind of, uh, and Elodie's kind of like, yeah, okay." And I really loved those Little, um, they felt very familiar to me. I grew up in a small town. I was like, I can totally picture this interaction. Did you find that you were kind of remembering? older people from childhood in those bits from where you grew up in Pembrokeshire
0: <laughs> yeah that's a good question I, yeah, I li- used to work at like the local supermarket so I guess I was having a lot of like interactions with people constantly actually I did work on the bakery section as well <laughs> but you, like, you know you have the same like characters over and over and you know people you've known like your whole life and you have like a little chat and stuff so you do there is that kind of familiarity and I guess as well like working with like um colleagues so, you know you have colleagues in the shop who'd been working there like years and years and years and who'd also lived there years and years and years who'd know everyone too and that kind of easy banter it was definitely yeah something I kind of was influenced by and yeah the sense that you just know everyone and you know everyone has their little disagreements and little kind of feuds and if, if you're not involved you kind of you know, I, I'm kind of like I can never resist a bit of gossip, basically. Yeah, me
1: too. <laughs> and when you go back, do you feel comforted by that? Do you feel like you slot back in to kind of the Sophie you were when you were younger, and you kind of know your your dynamic within the community? And do you like that familiarity?
0: I do like the familiarity. I guess I don't go back as much as I used to, which just makes me sad. But I did take some friends back recently and we went to like the pub that I used to go to as a teenager and it was just like so funny to kind of go back in and be like, oh hey, this is where I spent like every weekend from like age fifteen to nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it like, kind of seems tiny. Um let's play some pool. <laughs> let's have a let's have a drink. Um but yeah, it was kind of it, it is funny going back and just People change so much, and but some things stay the same. And yeah, yeah. When I go back, I sometimes I feel a bit a bit melancholy because I think I
1: want I want things to be the same. I have just have to accept. that. And also, I've gone away and then gone back and kind of expected everything to remain the same. And it's like, well, no, that's not
0: what happens. People move on. People get ill. People move away. Yeah, a lot can change. In I mean, I moved away in. It must have been, like, 15 years ago or something now as well. So, like, a lot can change in that time. Well, let's move on to your next object. This is
1: something you say you should have thrown
0: out. Oh, this is my first book. So, yeah, actually, when I was back at home and I was going through, like, my cupboard of junk in my parents in my parents house and um yeah so before my first book Watercure I wrote like um another book and I found like the printout of it and it was yeah maybe something I should have thrown away is a bit harsh but um because you know it is still a whole book that I wrote and it was like my first kind of big project and it was kind of exciting to find it but also kind of like sad because <laughs> i think i printed it out because i remember sending it to agents and it actually did get me my agent but i sent it agents back when you still had to send like printed out manuscripts to agents instead of emailing it so it was like quite a while ago <laughs> what's it about it was about a mother and her daughter who live on an island in the very far north like kind of in the arctic circle and the island is based around rituals of light and dark because they experience a week of like polar night where the whole town is completely dark and so the light is rationed and no one's allowed to use the light so it's quite like high concept i still think it's actually like great idea (laughs) it sounds like because i've started to read the water
1: cure which is your first book in inverted commas it was the first book that you got published but of course that's hardly ever the case with writers is it you sort of Mm. say it was your first book it's like well no i wrote i wrote seven other books and they didn't get published or i you know i wrote half of it and um and realized perhaps it wasn't quite working and that's set on an island in an abandoned hotel. Do you ever feel like any word is wasted when you put it on paper? Because presumably by writing that first book, which I certainly don't think you should throw away ever, you may have ignited um, this idea of an island and taken some stuff from that and put it
0: into the water cure. I think so. Like I think it's, I just, I'm very fascinated by kind of isolated spaces and isolated people. And so... Yeah, it it kind of made sense that I would return to the island idea and writing the first one made me realise how interested I am in like ritual as well, like The first one is so ritualised and how that can also be like a framework for the narrative, Uh, even just in a kind of way, like it's it's hard writing a book and I had no idea what I was doing and having the structure which was like, okay, it's based around this time of this festival. So like day one, day two, day three, it was like a little ladder that I could kind of put a narrative onto. So that was really useful. It taught me, yeah, it taught me loads. I always call it like my pancake book because you never get the first one quite right, but still delicious (laughs) and still fun to make. I don't think any word is ever wasted. I'm very much a blur everything out onto the page and cut later, but I never throw anything away. I Even though I know I'm not going to use it, I just put it, I copy and paste and basically put it in like a document. For every book, I've got a document called uh, Cut Bits and then the title and then often that ends up bigger than the actual book itself. <laughs> do you ever go back to the cut bits? Sometimes I do and sometimes I will put things back in or I'll be like, maybe that's for something else mm. but it's funny how I often don't actually use the bits that were cut and especially when it's been like oh it's like a really a big wrench to cut this bit i've just like cut a massive bit of the book i'm working on now and i put it in cut bits and it's like i love that bit that was like my favorite bit of the book but somehow like now I've written better stuff, so it has to go. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it kind of feels really like, um, what's quite like mean mean to my words. (laughs) Like I could discard them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But there's something about putting them in that folder that feels very different from just deleting them. Everyone has these, I suppose, rituals in a sense, or tricks that they use. I don't mean trick as in a trick on the reader. I mean a trick on themselves to free the words
0: yeah, I say this a lot to like when I'm teaching creative writing I'm like honestly so much of writing is tricking yourself into doing it even though like I I love writing it's like my favorite thing and I still have to trick myself like not necessarily about getting like my bum in the seat but kind of about like letting my brain go a bit and and some of them are, like very basic like when I'm finishing a first draft I will like give myself little star stickers for every 500 words which is you know very very toddler like but it does like weirdly work all these things which um feel quite basic or like they shouldn't work just sort of getting a little bit outside your brain actually does work. This time I wrote first draft of my book and then I printed it off and then I highlighted all the bits that were good. I let it sort of sit for a bit and unfortunately, like I'd really reduced the book with the highlighted bits. And I was like, okay, I just I'm gonna use the highlighted bits to work from a new draft. Kind of depressing, but sure.
1: <laughs> so you did, and is that the book you're working on now? Yeah, yeah. And is that a novel again? Yes, it is. Yeah. Wow. Well, you
0: know, even
1: people who have written like. 40 books are probably still trying out different things to you know it's a, an open door isn't it you're it's a learning curve in the truest sense because you're constantly developing and working out different ways of working It'd
0: be so boring to write a book the same way every time as well and I mean every, every time I sit down I'm like I know how I do this now I know what to do I'm just gonna like replicate the trick and it's like
1: you can't somehow I just can't Um, Well, let's move on to the next
0: object, and this is Somewhere You Are Happy. Yes, I really love... Yeah, I sound like a real loner. I'm talking about, like, oh, growing up, like, lonely in the countryside and travelling alone. But I really like travelling alone, I think partly because... I get a little bit stressed other people traveling I'm kind of a a big um, travel dad like love to be really early to the airport love to kind of not have to chat to anyone on a train and yeah well actually when I sold the water cure I went on holiday by myself for like the first time and I went to Greece and it was just like it was so nice I felt like a really lovely way to kind of celebrate a kind of big moment and sort of sit with it and think oh you know I've kind of been working really hard for a few years and I've sort of done this thing which I've always wanted to achieve. And yeah, just nice to kind of as well just be in a space where you can kind of do what you like. I just, I literally didn't do much that week. I was on a beach and I swam and I lay around and went for bike rides, which is also nice because I think other people might have wanted to do stuff, but I was like, I'm kind of happy just chilling. <laughs> when you're traveling
1: on a train, I'm exactly the same. I get seized by this. If, I think someone's going to travel with me and I didn't know they were going to come or if I'm sitting next to someone who wants to chat, I just it feels like my world's ending. I'm kind of like, no, I really, really wanted this time for myself. With me, I think it's partly because I find it quite difficult not to multitask and I sometimes feel like I have to give myself permission to just daydream and I think daydream is so important. Are you like that too? Do you like doing things like daydreaming and I suppose things that require a bit more space within the boundaries of knowing, well, actually at three o'clock I'm going to meet someone for coffee, so I'm allowed this
0: time now. Or are you good at just kind of going, I'm just going to go for a walk and see what happens? No, I think it's good to have the boundaries for sure. Um, Yeah, I can feel a little bit formalist to have that much time I think the place I was best at daydreaming was actually like when I was working in my kind of last full-time office job um that sounds really bad I'm like sorry if my old boss is listening <laughs> I, don't,
1: I was good at my job my sorry job, for I, all those letters <laughs> that never got posted
0: <laughs> but I just like I just done that job for kind of so long and there was a lot of kind of stuff that you know you could sort of zone Mm -hmm. out and I would listen to that music and I'd have a kind of playlist for working on my book and I just would kind of happily sort of drift off and be sort of in two places at once which I found nice and I think this you know probably the most productive place I do my daydreaming now is in Bits like, you know, doing my laundry or cleaning, uh, hoovering and kind of thinking. Because I think when you're distracted physically, it's kind of you can think in a different way as opposed to when you're like, I am having some thoughts now. I'm going to like have some ideas. (laughs) Yeah, that's so
1: true. When my friend who's another actor learns lines, she does it while she's doing housework or sorting out her bookshelf or something because she finds that the lines go in better if she's doing a physical activity And they stay in. Do you prefer silence to have that time to daydream?
0: I prefer silence and uh, kind of like drives my boyfriend nuts. He just doesn't understand it. He's like, how can you not have a podcast on or some music or something? And I'm like, I don't know. I just like the sound of my own brain. <laughs> I don't know. Like the sound of like the, the quiet. Um, I actually find it quite hard to um, sometimes always like take in information through my ears. I think it's sort of a, a that's a hangover from school. <laughs> I was always being told off for like not listening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do like having, having quiet sometimes to sort of, I just let things sort of percolate. And there's something, when you were talking about your childhood and about the sea,
1: you mentioned quite a few times that space, that you were allowed that space through where you lived. And I suppose the nature of growing up on the farm and and the nature of your parents allowing you to kind of play alone and be alone. You had that world, almost a secret world to yourself, to read and to And although I say that I'm indifferent to the sea, I do it to kind of annoy, (laughs) sometimes to annoy my partner who really likes the sea. I do like the sea, but I don't, I don't know. I don't feel that connection to it. But the thing that I think is when I'm on the beach, everything has to slow down. It feels really instinctive to just kind of bed in and it's a good place to read. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people get through books on the beach, even people who don't read that much. There's something about the waves that lulls you into that space where you can daydream and you can maybe get a bit
0: nostalgic for childhood holidays Mm, Mm. totally yeah I love that the beach does feel like a time kind of out of time (laughs) like you can be there for hours and hours but you can also kind of be there for 10 minutes and feel like you've been there for about three hours (laughs) yeah it can be really energy giving in that
1: way can't it or going for a blustery walk you know especially the beaches within the UK we're not talking about golden sands and endless blue sea, are we? We're talking sometimes about really rough waves and would you go for walking like a storm or
0: like really windy weather? Oh in yeah. The for, sea? Def- for sure. Like that, my parents actually love doing that. I think the second there's any kind of wind, my dad's like, Right, we have to go to the beach. And there's like one be- beach called Amaros that they go to quite a lot and it's you know, it's not the most beautiful beach in the world. It's quite like pebbly and quite grey, but it's a really good one to kind of watch the waves hit and yeah. A lot of like my parents going for a walk there are just kind of involves heading there like getting a hot chocolate just watching the scene sort of coming back (laughs) there's something about the word bracing it's like you've got to brace yourself against
1: something and then you go home get home shut the door and you're back in your cozy yeah so when I first started reading the book what jumped out to me was Elodie's need to escape and fantasize but actually as I went on what stays with me having finished it now is the theme of hunger so I feel like both. Elodie and Violet are, are not sated, especially Elodie. And Elodie has this great desire for clarity. So she talks a lot about being an archivist and sifting through events, raking through to try and find meaning. And often within a single sentence, she'll say, This is my version of what happened. Actually, it, it could be this, is it or isn't it? It looks like she's holding past events up to the light and turning them around for me and kind of, it seems really important to her to try and make sense of what happened and to have that clarity and sort of look for certainty and in, in oblivion really
0: are you good at living in the grey area? Hmm. Well that's such a good question I feel like I'm getting better at it I think weirdly like the pandemics sort have of helped me be better at uncertainty because it was like wow it really doesn't matter what you know about anything or about your entire life it can just change <laughs> things can be like very different so I think I've definitely got a bit more like relaxed about Yeah, living in the gray area. But yeah, I think maybe Elodie belongs to like a version of myself where I really did not like uncertainty and I needed to know everything. And she's just completely shocked and just trying to figure out what happened. And I think we're not good as human beings generally at kind of dealing with what we don't know. We always want closure and we always want a reason. And she keeps just thinking, like, if she can remember it again, if she can remember it one more time, if she can go over it like she if she can just figure out what actually happened because she has no idea what actually happened to her then you know she can kind of move on and that's not kind of always how it works, but that kind of rumination and that sense of just trying to get everything correct was something that I wanted to build into like the narrative form. But I remember reading, I think it was in blueettes by Maggie Nelson, that, you know, every time we remember something, we actually, we change the memory because we remember it like a little bit different. And so that was really interesting to me too, that idea that actually by trying to fix down the evidence, she's kind of altering the evidence. She's um, changing her own perception of it she's turning it not into the memory but into the memory of a memory so there is that layer of uncertainty too and coming back to the sea again when you were talking it reminded me
1: of a pebble lying on a beach and the the waves slowly eroding the pebble so it's like with each examination of it she's eroding what originally And I think that is what we do, especially at the end of relationships. I did it. Certainly, you know, when I got my heart broken at 17, it almost felt like to make sense of what happened would enable me not only to move on, but to kind of somehow
0: have power over him. Like, I didn't want him to leave with all the power. Mm. And she has given so much power to this couple and that sense of one of the, the biggest drivers in life, but also in the book, is like she's just kind of heartbroken and she just wants to know what happened to her. She's having lost so much and, you know, feeling hoodwinked almost, feeling like she's been taken in, not knowing what's real and what's not real. I think those are the kind of feelings many people can kind of identify with in a romantic way. Definitely, definitely. I. Can. <laughs> Well, let's move on to your last object, and this is something that changed you. So learning to cook. Well, my mum was always a really good cook um, growing up, and I kind of used to love helping her, but then I guess I kind of, when I went to uni and stuff, I kind of fell out of the habit. And then, well, when I moved to London... I was getting kind of more into food and learning about food and ingredients and started to cook a bit with my um, then partner. And together we'd kind of make these like quite elaborate meals. We'd kind of spend whole Saturdays inventing things. And I remember making this lasagna once that was it was actually kind of a, an amazing lasagna. We put so much effort into like making this incredible like ragu and like making the bechamel. And then right at the end, he like plopped a cream egg into it because he was like, oh, like the ragu needs a bit of like chocolate for complexity. And that's all we had. And I was like, have you really just put a cream egg in this lasagna that we've spent hours making? It didn't improve it, but it was, you know, it was quite like a funny food memory. <laughs> cream egg is such a funny thing to put. But in it. Yeah, I mean, like, he, he's kind of like a well, chaotic food genius, I think, yeah it's <laughs> completely different to how I cook, which is like quite um, a lot more methodical. Do you like following a recipe or do you like, do you kind of feel a bit hampered by receiving that instruction? I like a recipe as a guide um, and then kind of spinning off it a little bit. But, you know, some it's kind of that hit and misses approach is sometimes won't come together and you can have some kind of terrible result, I think. Um, I, I love making like kind of like lemon tarts and stuff but there's definitely been in time so I'm like okay well this is just like a, a lemon goo runny runny lemon like milkshake <laughs> um, but yeah but my kitchen is kind of my my favorite place and I really like having my friends over and like roasting a chicken and I don't know something that's really nice about it it feels like the opposite of writing in some ways because it's just sort of there with the food chopping calmly but also I guess that's where I do a lot of thinking to in in the chopping chopping of vegetables. So no podcasts when you're cooking either? No, but I do yeah. have music sometimes, depending on how I'm feeling. If I'm cooking for like a big meal, I'll probably have something like high energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I wonder if it feels
1: like the opposite to writing because the meal is gone when it's gone. So mm. you've got the memory of the conversation and I think the combination of people and you bring them around is really important and you can have such. As I get older, I just love having a long meal and kind of having those hours together but I wonder if it feels like the opposite of writing because there's no finished product apart from the memory whereas with writing you've got a thing
0: yeah I kind of love that yeah this writing is so you know you chip away at it for ages and you're even if you're cutting bits and putting them in the the cut bits folder like you're creating something and even if I'm cooking all day like it is just gone. <laughs> yeah. It's something kind of freeing about it. Like it's something, you're not making something, it's like the joy of doing it in its own right. I think be, maybe because it's like kind of unproductive and productive. I think I really struggle with doing things that are like not productive, which is pretty bad. It's, you know, it's nice to sometimes just like waste some time, but yeah, I love knitting. I love cooking and maybe cooking kind of fills that space where it's like it's productive, but it's relaxing. And it's also important because you don't
1: want your guests to be poisoned, just you bring up the theme of the book, actually. But also you want them to enjoy the meal. You want to kind of risk a little bit by maybe putting some stock in where it doesn't say so, but you also want them to enjoy it. So I think there's a lovely, there's a kind of boundary, there's a guideline there, but you have that bit of freedom within it
0: the funny thing is because i was writing cursed bread in lockdown and obviously everyone was so into sourdough and i've been yeah. asked um by people like oh like were you kind of doing loads of baking while writing cursed bread and i was like actually no because i went through all of like the first lockdown without a functioning oven <laughs> so oh, I, really i just had like the hob like two hobs and like a travel fridge and so there was kind of no baking going on but I did get really good at making like flatbreads and I think one day we had like a barbecue and we had this really big barbecue so you kind of cook things on that and I was just kind of so desperate to make bread somehow that I made it in like a a casserole dish and I put the casserole dish in the barbecue actually really worked (laughs) kind of had quite like a camping vibe but um yeah it was funny (laughs) Just one of those like lockdown projects. You're like, I'm so bored. Can I bake bread in a la on a barbecue? Like, I feel like maybe you're not meant to, but like, I'm going to try. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, What is it you remember most about cooking with your mum when you were little? I think it's kind of feeling grown up and excited to help. I remember, like, the kitchen just feeling so big to me. Yeah, my mum kind of would give me a lot of freedom to try things. I remember making a candy floss cake for my granddad once. Like, Like, he took me to Barry Island and he bought me a big bag of candy floss. And... I was like, oh, I could probably like do something with this. And I must have been like five or something ridiculous. And so my mum sort of helping me and not really saying anything. Is like cracked like many eggs and just mixed the candle floss in. It's probably had bits of shells. I think I used like my sieve from the garden. so It probably has sand in it as well. And like, I still remember my granddad sitting down and eating it, like actually eating the whole thing and being like, that is delicious. Well done. Oh. <laughs> and me feeling so proud but it's like that is a true act of love to eat the sandy eggy candy floss omelette that your grandchild has made <laughs> yeah that should be the test yeah right?
1: <laughs> um the, my last question i know that you read horoscopes you like the fact that the horoscopes exist for me in the book it feels like there is a sense of destiny I think it's partly because you're getting the letters from Elodie from the place never see that she's gone to after the, the incident happens that it's all kind of leading to. But I think also just generally there's a slightly fablish quality to it that it's going it to all feels very real. But just the sense that this is pushing towards this severely horrific thing. And the sense of that is present for me throughout the book. Do you believe in destiny or do you think there's a value to believing in destiny?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know how much I believe in destiny, but I mean, I'm definitely, I'm a bit superstitious and yeah, kind of, I'm still fascinated by horoscopes and I really love tarot. My friend gave me a really beautiful set for my book launch, actually. And I think it harks back a bit to what you said about like the grey area. Things that I, when I'm kind of feeling more in that space of uncertainty, I feel more drawn to these things, and I can't help feeling sometimes that things kind of happen for a reason, even though I'm, I'm like, oh, I know that's kind of maybe a bit like hippy dippy or not the way things work out. But there's something about the sense of I don't know, a sense of comfort of kind of being in a universe where things kind of slot into place a little bit, even if it's not like everything being like preordained and having zero freedom. Yeah, there's something comforting, and I think that you know that's why I kind of was drawn to horoscopes and. I'm still drawn to like tarot and stuff. It is that kind of idea of oh, maybe just like tapping into that kind of energy of of things having a sort of meaning and things being connected and getting a little bit of that kind of magic almost. And I mean, it's reassuring. Yeah, and it feels benign. <laughs> I mean, there's been times where I've read a bad horoscope or you know done tarot reading for myself that it's been not great news or something, and, and I'm it can like actually it's like really throw your whole day off. And mm. I'm like, why am I letting this kind of throw my day off? <laughs> They'd be the days that I'd be like, oh no, it's not true, it's not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, somehow when I get lots of good news, I'm like, oh, it's definitely true. <laughs> yeah. I did have like, um, yeah, after the water cure came out, when I was feeling quite. Um, I guess everything was quite overwhelming and it got so so much attention, which was like incredible. But I was feeling a bit like sort of shocked and overwhelmed by everything and feeling like, oh, well, I even write another book. Like, you know, I wasn't like kind of feeling it and struggling a bit with the first draft and stuff. And I did go for like a tarot reading and she was amazing. And some of the stuff she was saying was like so spooky. But at the same time, it's like, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to be like, oh, of course, like she was so on the money. (laughs) Like you can kind of twist it to the way you want <laughs> yeah well I suppose it doesn't matter
1: does it if it mm. if it frees you up then it doesn't I mean there'll be some people I guess who say it does matter it's important to know whether it's true or not but actually I think it's only ever about what you take from it mm. so yeah maybe I'll go and get my tarot yeah. <laughs> I just have to have before I do I'll be like only say good things please yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to us today it's been really really lovely um, thank you so much it's been lovely to chat <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. Um, If you can, please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening. It helps get the word out and it helps other people to find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you'll find everyone from Dolly Alderton to Benjamin Zephaniah talking about their writing. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time.